Hello, Metro Augusta. Hello, Georgia. And hello, wherever you are. This is Janice Allen Jackson welcoming you to the February 28th edition of Local Matters, a show designed to make you a more confident voter and a more engaged citizen. As always, today's show is brought to you as a service of my consulting firm, and that is Janice Allen Jackson and Associates, where we provide services to local government and nonprofit organizations. If you haven't already and you're on the Facebook platform, please follow the Local Matters Podcast of Georgia on Facebook. And of course, we ask you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. That way you are notified when we drop new episodes and when we post other information and of course, that also lets us know that you support the Local Matters podcast. Today, we are going to follow up on the topic of foster care. You may recall that late last year, I had Dr. Jackson Drumgool on talking about bridge builders, communities, and his efforts to provide housing and support services to young people who are leaving the foster care system. Today, we're going to learn more about foster care and how it has evolved over the years from Danette Smith. She is a foremost expert on child welfare, and she's going to describe how social workers and judges make decisions about what children go into foster care versus when they can stay at home, talk about the goals of the child welfare system, and uh, some of the things that she would like you to know about what it takes to have an effective child welfare system. But before we get to that, I want to let you know about a podcast guest appearance that I did. Uh, I was reached out to by a gentleman by the name of Dylan Busby. He is a resident here in the Augusta area, and he has a podcast called Dress Casual. That episode is available on YouTube. So I would suggest you go there. Uh, we actually talked for about an hour and a half. He asked me a lot of questions about uh, local government here in the Augusta area. And I always like having the tables turned every now and then. Instead of me asking the questions, I was the one uh, that got a chance to provide some responses. So like I said, head on over to YouTube to see that. And I believe it's also on Spotify as well. As always, thank you so much for being a part of our Local Matters family. Local Matters family, we have a treat today in the presence of Miss Danette Smith. Uh, she comes to us all the way from the Midwest. Uh, she is a foremost expert on child welfare, and I am looking forward to her thoughts, and I think you should as well. As we follow up on an episode we did late last year in the foster care system, uh, we had at that time Jackson Drumgool talk to us about Bridge Builder Communities, which is a nonprofit venture that he has started to help youth Today, we're going to hear from Danette R. Smith. She's someone who's been a social worker for several decades. I don't know if you want to share how many you've been a social uh, worker. Because <laughs> if I share how many, that's going to really tell my age. But I'd say about 25, 30 to 25 years. Okay. All right. 
Um, I had the pleasure of working with Miss Smith when I was in Mecklenburg County. I think some of you know I spent a few years in the county manager's office in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, which is where Charlotte is located. And during that time, I had the opportunity to oversee some services I had never been exposed to before. And that was uh, human services, community health and safety was the area that I was responsible for. And the net was one of our team members in that area. So we became close at that time and have kept in touch ever since. How you doing today, Danette? Oh, Janice, I am doing fine and just thrilled to be on your show. Thank you so much for asking. You are very, very welcome because I knew you had the expertise to talk foster care. Uh, so as I was thinking about that, I said the right person to come on and talk about this from the social worker's perspective would be Danette Smith. But before you get started with that, can you just describe a little bit about your professional background? Tell us about your professional training and how it is that you got to be a social worker. Well, you know, um, I started in Chicago, Illinois. I'm originally from a little city called East Chicago, Indiana, sits five minutes outside of Gary. That's where I was raised, still town family, and I would say significant uh, strong work ethic. Ended up going to get my master's in social work from the University of Illinois. And that was because I had a colleague that thought that I was very intuitive. Uh, creative and innovative, even at that point in my life. And he thought, boy, could we use some good social workers like you? Have you thought about going back to get your MSW? So I did. Went to University of Illinois and got my master's in social work. Um, worked in a lot of the major non-for-profit organizations there in Chicago, Illinois, and decided, mm, I'm tired of this. I think I'd like to try someplace else in the country. So I got recruited to Mecklenburg County to run their child welfare system because I had had extensive uh, background in family support, child welfare, and early childhood programs in my career in Chicago. And so coming to Mecklenburg County, running the child welfare system for about six and a half years was just a phenomenal opportunity for me. I got to work with you and I worked with Jake, Jake Jacobson and many of the other division directors. And it was just an exciting time for me to kind of learn about the South, learn about child welfare as being the leader and also how state government operates. Since then, I've been all over the country from Georgia to uh, Seattle, Washington, to Virginia Beach, Virginia, most recently in uh, Nebraska, where I was the state secretary of all of Health and Human Services. Uh, the Department of Health and Human Services here in Nebraska is the largest department in state government. I had over 5,000 staff and a budget of $6.3 billion. That included benefit programs to residential, clinical, juvenile justice programs to behavioral health services for persons with disabilities, child welfare, and benefit programs. You name it, we did it. And there were five divisions that reported directly into me with me reporting directly to the government. I'm now on my way to Colorado. And I'm very excited about that because here I'm going to be overseeing the development of behavioral health administration for the state of Colorado. And there we'll be looking at how can Coloradans access good behavioral health services for adults and for children. So I'm excited about that opportunity. I'll be starting sometime in March and just look forward to the opportunity to do it. But 
My first love has always been child welfare. And so I am excited that I'm able to talk with you about it. And I also want to say to you that I was totally impressed uh, with Dr. Uh, Drumgool and his vision for uh, Bridges, the Bridges program, just totally, totally uh, impressed with that vision and how he wants to implement it. And I think I can speak to that and inculcate that into some of the questions you're going to ask me. Awesome. Awesome. There's one thing that you didn't spend quite as much time on that I want folks to know about you. And that is that you worked in the state of Georgia at the state level. I did. I did. Tell us yes. about what your role was with the sure. state of Georgia. I, uh, believe it or not, I worked for DFACS in Fulton County. I ran all of Fulton County uh, Department of Children and Family Services, I think from uh, 2007 to 2010. And I was under the leadership of B.J. Walker, who was the commissioner at the time. And at that time, we were in the midst of the beginning of a consent decree, which for us meant that we really had to look at how we provided child welfare services to children and families within Fulton County. We used data, we used good practice, we communicated with the community, our providers to be able to do that work. A good opportunity for me to learn and really figure out, Janice, how to use data as a way to help me guide what our performance and strategy really needed to be. That was the beginning part of that. Well, certainly I would say it began in Mecklenburg County uh, with Jake Jacobson, but in, in Georgia, we were honing in on how to use data, how to make data help us predict the kind of child welfare system that we needed in Georgia. And of course, DeKalb and Fulton were at the head of that uh, uh, in terms of how child welfare services needed to be. And, you know, I would tell you that uh, I was very, very involved with my staff. And I don't think that you can do child welfare from a corner office. You really have to be out in the field with your staff to get it done. And I did that in Mecklenburg and certainly did that in Atlanta and have continued to do that throughout my career. Awesome. Awesome. I love that we're going to talk about data and I want to get back to that later um, I, because I think that finally we've gotten to a point where we realize that you really don't know what's happening unless you have good data. Um, it's it's key, not just with child welfare, but a lot of other types of services that state and local governments provide. So thanks for making that point. And now let's kind of dive into our topic about child welfare. And I'll, I'll, I mentioned the conversation with Dr. Drumgool, which you listened to, and I'm glad you do applaud his vision because I think it's absolutely wonderful that the whole idea of kids coming out of foster care, these young adults who basically don't have anywhere to go you know, after the checks get cut off, a lot of times those families will put those kids out, kids out and they, they don't have any options. Um, and that's one of the things I first thought about and learned about when I was in Mecklenburg as well. Um, but let's let's talk about the options. There was another conversation I had um, a few a couple months ago, one of our Saras. Um, I was having dinner with her, hadn't talked to her in a while, and she is a... Um, juvenile probation officer and she was talking about how sometimes she, and she's in Virginia she was talking about how sometimes she feels like the social workers will leave the kids in the home for too long and then I'll have a conversation with somebody else and they think think the social workers are too eager to pull the kids out of the home 
which of course, you know, that was right a dilemma that as child welfare workers you all are faced with. I mean, how do you make those decisions? I mean, it's the toughest decision ever in terms of deciding what's going to be best for a child and best for a family. I mean, how do you even approach making decisions like that? But let's level set. Um, the social worker makes no sole decision or shouldn't be making any sole decision by themselves. We first receive a allegation of abuse and neglect. Before that is screened into the system for an investigation, we have to make sure that that allegation rises to the level of abuse and neglect based on statutory requirements within that given state. If it does, then it's given to a social worker who we usually call an investigator or uh, a sometimes family engagement worker. Now we kind of have changed the name from investigator to family engagement worker um, that will go out and assess the situation. In my experience, and I want to, because all states, Janice, do it differently. In my experience, I never allow my worker to solely make that decision by herself or himself. That decision, once that assessment was done, was then brought back to the office for further discussion with the supervisor. And sometimes, depending on the severity of the abuse or neglect, it would go up the chain to like a unit so that it was completely staffed. Now, I also want to suggest to you that there have been two ways of doing what we call a family assessment. One is a forensic. That forensic assessment is where it is really where we have significant abuse cases, where a child has been harmed, seriously injured, and we're almost taking on an investigatory approach. A family assessment is when we're going in and we're really talking with the family. No police are involved or law enforcement are involved, but we're really going in because we're hearing that there's some concerns that need to be addressed. And in this day and age, what we want to do is to see how we can strengthen the family to be able to solve the problem themselves. Janice, when I got in the field almost 30 years ago, it was quite different. There were concerns about moving children due to poverty, not having enough food. I think the system is trying to move away from that and has in some degree moved away. Hence why you hear some people say children are staying in the home too long. Because part of our goal these days is to work with the family structure to support so that children don't have to be removed. Over the last 30 years, we've learned that children being removed from their parents, no matter how bad the situation is, it can be traumatic. And so we want to minimize that trauma as best we can if we can work with the family in the home. Now, Janice, I have to say to you, sometimes that is not possible. It is not possible to provide a safe environment for that child to live. And so it may necessitate for us to remove children. One of the other things I want to highlight for you is that we don't just remove a lot of kids based on neglect. Most kids, when they're removed, uh, had to do with abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. Um, neglectful kind of food are things like not having food, not having clothing. Those are things that we can deal with. I think back in the day, those were areas where kids were removed. But in this day and age, 
we're trying to be more upstream, more preventative as we work with families. The second thing that you mentioned was about juvenile justice, and then I'm going to go further into the system. As much as possible, when we are doing that family assessment or doing that investigation, we try to bring partners to the table who may have had some kind of connection with this family. And sometimes juvenile justice has. Juvenile justice has been a strong partner these days. And I'm going to say over the last, I say 10 to 15 years with us, because we've seen a lot of the kids who are involved in child welfare have also been involved in juvenile justice. So how do we as a system strike that balance between juvenile justice or what we call duly adjudicated children? How do we strike that balance? And sometimes that's where the conundrum is is whose responsibility is it really? When I was in Georgia, I worked for, I worked with a juvenile justice uh, person as well as in Mecklenburg County, you might remember this, where we worked tirelessly together that when a child into the child welfare system, what if any involvement did they have with juvenile justice? And if you recall, many times we were doing what was called joint staffing. You remember that? Between juvenile justice and child welfare. So a case never went in front of juvenile court without the probation officer and the child welfare social worker working together, staffing that case together and presenting it in front of the court when we were considering, considering removal. The second thing that we did both in Georgia and in Mecklenburg, if you recall, is we did a lot of family teams where before there was a removal, Janice, we sat down with the family and we talked about the allegations, not who called the allegation in, but what the allegation said and how could we as a system support that family better in the community. I don't know if you remember that. And then there were times where we went into mediation. So the case didn't even go to court. We did mediation to support the family. We brought people, the, um, the immediate family, sometimes the extended family, the neighbors, the school, to the table to help us support how the Smith family could better be able to protect and take, take care of the children in their home. So long story short, social worker does not make the decision alone. It is staffed with the supervisor. Most states these days are doing what they call family team meetings to make sure that the family is involved in any decision. They are engaging juvenile justice. They are engaging law enforcement. They are engaging their hospitals and physicians so that the juvenile justice system is making good decisions. From there, if it is decided that a child is going to be removed from, the uh, from their parents, it is then presented to the court. And the juvenile court makes the ultimate decision that this has risen to significant neglect or significant abuse, and the child can no longer be protected in the home. I, I'm going to share something with you to see if you remember me saying this. To you. When I was in Mecklenburg County, I would always say to my workers, if you do not, your gut is telling you, you don't feel safe to leave that child in the home, then you immediately call me or your supervisor, let's stay. That way we ensure that we're not keeping children at risk because we have innate guts that tell us, hey, something ain't quite right here. And so if you walk out of that home and shut that door 
and you still have that queasy feeling, get in the car and give us a call. Let's staff it before you leave the premises. Do you remember that? You might remember me saying that. Yes, all that. I do remember that. I also I remember there was a, an analogy you used to use about the lock locking at every level. That's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So we want to lock and load when we complete that investigation. We want to lock and load after it's went to court and we're putting together a case plan. We want to lock and load the permanency strategies to get this child home on or before the 18 months into care. And then we want to lock and load to make sure that the child and family has all the support they need. I think a big part of what's different now than it was when I started is that we are engaging families in a much different way than we used to. When I first started, we removed kids with the thought that the parents were bad. And what we found is that after kids got out of foster care or if they ran, ran away, guess where they ran to? ran back home. The parent, yeah. They ran back home to the parent. So how could we figure out a way to really strengthen the family to be able to support the work that needs to happen on the child's behalf? When I was in Mecklenburg County, and I know uh, you'll remember this jargon, we talked about having a family-centered home. Mm -hmm. And what that meant was that the family was the nucleus of all the work we were doing on behalf of the child. Nothing about us without us. Remember that? Nothing about us without us. Anything that we said to anybody outside, we should be able to say that to the family. And we did. And we did. So we brought the family in to participate in the services, to make sure that we understood their need, how we could better serve them and support them before we just simply brought a child in the care. Fast forwarding to 2024, there is a lot of upfront, what we call prevention upfront stream being done. In other words, we wanna minimize the number of children that come into care and the kids that come into care really need the involvement of government. And so if it's about food, clothing, behavioral health, and school, you can handle that in the community. But if there are instances where a child is significantly at risk by their family or whoever, that where they would require a greater level of oversight, those are the children that we're bringing into care. And let me give you an example of the types of children that, I'm, that are coming into care. The first group of children that are coming in are children from the rural communities. That's because of the impact of fentanyl in their communities. And so for the first time, I think in the child welfare system, we are working more closely in rural communities with law enforcement, with schools around those kids who are in rural communities. Removals are not happening at the same rate as they used to in urban areas. Wow. Okay. Okay. Not so as you feel like there's happening. been some success there. So you feel yeah. like there's been some success. Some, some, some. But again, we still in the urban areas still have disproportionality. So that's a whole nother topic. Okay. And what I'm hoping will happen is through the rise of EDIB, that's equity, diversity, and inclusion and belonging, mm -hmm. as and, and looking at that through a lens of really being able to support families, 
we can cut down on some of the biases that we see when people go out to do homeless. And that's a whole nother show and topic that could be discussed. But we're and, at the and that, That's one of the things, though, that Dr. Drunkle alluded to, yeah. that yes. Black and brown families, if you look at the numbers, those families are disproportionately yes. represented yes. in the foster care system. Yes. And so what you're telling me, and like you said, I'm sure we talked for a long time about that, but what you're telling me is that um, the social work profession is now taking a look at that to reduce the impact of, of race. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And I'll come, I'll come back to that. So where I left off was that child, uh, the case goes to juvenile court. The judge ultimately makes the decision as, uh, as to whether this rises to abuse and neglect and the child is truly at risk of significant harm. And remember, when a social worker goes into the home, they are assessing for risk. They are looking at what makes this child at risk of potential harm happening over and over again. That information, that report is then within 20, usually 24 hours taken to court. The juvenile court um, judge hears the case with maybe the parent's attorney and the department's attorney and makes a decision as to whether or not the child indeed needs to be brought into custody for protection. They are then placed into a foster home uh, where they stay until uh, such time they can they have reached permanency and can be reunited with their families. One of the things that I liked about that Dr. Uh, Drumgoul said was the importance of family and family support. Fast forwarding to now over the last 10 years, we have been working hard and feverishly as social workers to engage kinship placement, relatives, or whoever the family, the child deems as a relative to them, to be able to get them to be in support so that there's some connection. Remember earlier I said that kids just seem to do better when they're with family. When they ran away, they run away right back home. Then the mother has to call and say, uh, uh, John is back at my house. So we try to figure out over the last 10 days, I mean, over the last 10 years, 15 years, how can we utilize kinship placement, kinship uh, and relative placement as a source to place children when they have to be placed out of their, out of their home? And there has been a lot of work around the recruitment of relative homes, the recruitment of kinship homes, because kinship sometimes is what the child identifies as a family. It could be a neighbor and they go there and they necessarily have to be a relative. And then how do we figure out, which is a nuance, how do we figure out that child being able to get SNAP benefits while they're staying with the relative or with the kid? That's another piece. That's the economics that uh, Dr. Dromagul was talking about. He thinks it's an economic piece. Well, there is slightly an economic. And part of what we have to teach our families is how to utilize the benefits they get as best they can. And I, I'm the first to say that um, I've never seen a parent that I've come in contact with brag about being on assistance. You know, there's, there, there's this whole discussion about people don't want to work, all they want is to have assistance. I have come across few parents 
that have been involved in the child welfare system or even in my benefits program that brag about having to take benefits. Most of them want to work, but okay. may not have the skill and the capacity to do so. Okay. You hit on a couple of things I want to follow up on one at a time. You talked about going before the judge. So ultimately, a judge is making a decision about whether that child will be removed from a home? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, in concert, though, in concert with the social worker's report and their ability to testify about that family. Okay. okay? And so in Georgia, uh, what I was going to go to here is that we're going to be electing superior court judges this time around in our elections. And in Georgia, superior court selects, the superior court judges select juvenile court judges. So those people that we elect are going to have a direct influence over who it is that's here in that case um, related to whether a child or children need to be removed from their home. So I just want people to keep that in mind as they know the responsibilities, learn the responsibilities of these people that we're electing. So we need to elect some folks that are going to be sensitive to the needs of a family and be willing to listen to the social work team when that defects worker comes in to say, hey, we observe this, 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 and this. We therefore believe removal is necessary. Okay. All right. I just want to make sure you're making that connection because that's what we do here on Local Matters. And you also mentioned family unification was one of the things that we worked real hard on when we were in Mecklenburg. Um, is the goal always to try to get the child back into the family? I mean, because you hear all these stories about kids going into foster care and they roam from foster care home to home to home to home. Is the goal ever to get them back to their biological family? The goal is always to try to get them back to their biological family. But we have to be realistic that sometimes that's not possible. So is it possible for the foster parent to become a guardian of a teenager who's on their way to college or on their way to trade school? That's permanent. Is that possible? Sometimes um, um, we look for relatives to be able to provide some of that uh, cover for children as they begin to look uh, to leave uh, the system. Uh, one of the things I wanted to highlight for you, oh, and the, the third thing was emancipation. Sometimes, rarely would we recommend, but sometimes we recommend it, particularly if a child had a, a small baby, emancipation, but with great community resource support to be able to help that young mother and the baby be able to transition into adulthood. I've seen some cases where it's been successful. I've seen some cases where it has not. So when I, at all possible, we want to try a reunification. But what we really want to try is a strong permanency plan that allows the young person to transition into adulthood in the most appropriate way. And that's why I really liked Dr. Drumgoole's proposal of his bridge program, because that is exactly what's needed. It, cut down, it cuts down on a lot of things. Homelessness, substance abuse, human trafficking, all of those issues I faced when I was in Fulton County. And here he has a program in Augusta, small as it may be, with oversight and community involvement. And I'm not just talking about 
from what he said, not just community involvement from an agency standpoint, but people who actually care and who are willing to leverage who they are, who they are to be able to support and care for these young people. It is a phenomenal idea. It really is. is. And and, um, he continues to get support in our community for us. I'll be so happy when this comes to fruition. Um, As you talk about emancipation, I was sitting there thinking, gosh, there's some, you know, kid that, you know, some 16 year old that thinks that they got it together and they can live on their own. What what, tell, Tell us a little so when we do, what, what does that look like? Yeah. When so when we consider emancipation, it's really where the uh, social worker is ensuring that a good assessment is done of that young person at the ages of 16 or 17, that there's a level of maturity, there's a level of community support, family support to even consider emancipation. Emancipation is usually the last resort, not the first resort. And in the instances where I've seen This young person tends to be pretty mature, but has a lot of family and community support to be able to raise this child on their own outside of the system. It's a rarity. That's something that we go to. I would think it's got to be right Right. there. Um, Let's let's talk in terms of time frame. In those instances where you go in, you're assessing a situation and you're not necessarily getting that feeling, like I said, that feeling in the pit of your stomach, I can't leave these children here. You're not getting that feeling and you are working with the family. Um, what kind of time frame are we talking about? If you walk into that house in, you know, a March one, how much conversation is going to take place? Is it, you know, you're giving them a month? Is it you're giving them six months? How does that go? So let me also say this to you, because I and I'll answer your question as well, because I don't want your listeners to think that social workers go into the home and it's a gut feeling. No, it's not. They usually have what is called a risk assessment tool mm-hmm. that they utilize to assess the home and to have conversations with the child, with the family, and extended family. So I don't want people to think that oh, the worker goes in there, oh, they don't have food in the home, remove the child. No, it is based on a risk assessment tool that guides the decision-making and then guides whether or not there are preventive measures like uh, a family preservation program that we could put the family in or whether or not the child truly needs to be removed. So I just wanted to say that for clarity. Thank you. All states have different timelines, okay? Uh, Some, uh, based on the imminent risk of harm of the child, it could be immediate that the child be removed, put into um, a temporary foster home because it is so egregious that uh, they have to get a court order first, first from the judge to even agree to remove the child from them. So sometimes we have judges on call that allow us to call them, explain the situation, uh, the severity of what we're seeing, the abuse or neglect to be before the child is actually uh, being removed. So Janice, to answer your question, it could be immediate to 24 hours when they go to court on an emergency uh, removal petition. Everything is done based on a petition, okay? Mm -hmm. When you hear, and I wanna underscore this again, I said it earlier in my remarks, but I wanna underscore. When you hear people say, kids are staying in the home too long, it's because 
the system is moving more to prevention and giving parents a chance of working in the uh, working in the they are less likely, and I, sh I don't even want to use that terminology, they are more prudent in how they make their decisions in moving, removing children from, from, from the home. So it could be immediate to the next day. Depending on the state, what the state statute says, removals have to be done. And then after the removal occurs, some states, um, the social worker is back in court every 30 days, sometimes it's longer than that. It depends on the caseload of the judges and what the statute said. So in Chicago, when I was there, social workers were in court with the judge or the magistrate almost every 30 days giving an update on how the child is doing, how the family is doing, and whether or not they're reaching their permanency goals or not to do the reunification. If it was not happening within those most recent 15 months to 18 months, then we begin to talk about what then does the permanency goal need to change from reunification to adoption to guardianship. Okay. Let me get clear on this. In the instances where uh, you believe that there can be some uh, work with the family to strengthen the family, is the child in the home while those conversations are happening? Sometimes? The child is in the home and we, and we call those family preservation cases. So we've received an allegation about John Smith, and we have some concerns about John Smith, but the neglect doesn't rise to an abuse and neglect, uh, arise to where it's so egregious. So we think that we could keep John in the home and work with his family. Good uh, example of that is when you're dealing with a child where there's housekeeping issues, where there's not enough food where there's light touch of substance abuse in the home, we immediately start working with that parent to figure out what is it that we need to do to help you so that when we come to do the home visit in 30 days, we're not seeing a home that's in disarray, uh, mm -hmm. that you have adequate food in the home, and that if there's some su substance abuse, how can we curtail that? Okay. So you would be connecting, you and your team obviously would be connecting those families to a food pantry. That's correct. Um, maybe to get SNAP benefits if they don't have them in place. Um, there are steps that you would take if it's just a matter of, hey, this, this household doesn't have enough food on a daily basis. There's steps you're going to take to make sure that they get some food if that's the correct. only concern. Correct. However, if we walk into the home and John Smith, it is apparent that John Smith is um, hasn't eaten and initiated. That's not I'm not pronouncing that correctly. Uh, and we can tell failure to failure to thrive. Mm -hmm. Oh, we might remove that child immediately okay. because we know that that child is not well. And those are the calls that we get sometimes from the school and from the hospital. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? That might be an immediate removal. If we walk into the home and we see uh, a child with bruises on their back and they're fresh bruises and there's old bruises or we are called by the hospital because there's been a significant fracture, that's probably going to be an immediate. Again, all of this is discussed within the juvenile justice. Okay. But it is our role and responsibility to investigate it or do a family assessment.
And as you bring up family abuse, let's uh, physical abuse. Let's talk about that some. I mean, most of us in our age group grew up being spanked. And now uh, people say, well, you can't spank your kids anymore. Is that really the case? Because you can't spank your kids anymore? I can't tell a parent what to do. But what I would always say is that there's always alternatives to spank. Okay. Okay. Um, and when you do that assessment, if there is an allegation of physical abuse, you're looking for marks. Okay. Looking for broken bone. And, yeah. And, and not only that, Janice, it's not just the marks and things. We're looking at the child's behavior. You know, one of the things we haven't mentioned is how prevalent behavioral health services are needed in our communities, particularly in uh, black and brown communities. So we're looking at whether or not that child, that child could be 12 years old and have a failure to thrive behavior, depressed, not eating, not sleeping, mm -hmm. uh, uh, in uresis, uh, sexual acting out. There's all kinds of things that let us know that the home is not a safe place for a child to live or thrive. So we're looking at not just bruises, but we're also looking at what's the impact of this on the child? What kind of trauma has this created for the child? And again, we want as much as possible for children to be raised and living and loving and caring home. We recognize that that's not always possible, but we also know that government doesn't do a great job at that either. And so how do we as government support families and communities who want to do? And that's the role of government. And as you talk about loving homes, uh, do we assume that you also providing some parent education uh, resources yes. for parents? Yes. There's a, there's like? Yeah, there's typically a lot of parent education programs. But one of the things that I liked about Dr. Drungul, uh, uh process is that he's going to teach the young people and their parents how to do it. Uh, Janice, in, in, um, and this is off the point, but on the point. Uh, in Seattle, I had a wonderful opportunity to develop um, a, a program called First Bridge, and it had to do with working with young incarcerated African-American. And what we found out was that in many instances, these young men had been depressed for years, <laughs> but they didn't know the basics of how to pay rent, mm -hmm. how to prepare a good meal. They didn't know how to bank. They didn't know how to shop for groceries. They didn't know how to house. So if you're there with your girlfriend and your girlfriend has a small child and somebody calls an abuse or neglect allegation and the house is in disarray, what do you think is going to happen? You're probably going to get involved in the child welfare system. Yeah. So the ability to start early and often is what we have to do with our families that are most at risk. Okay. And so uh, a lot of the strategies that are happening within the child welfare system is all about upstream services. Prevention first, less about intervention. Got it. Um, let's talk about the selection of foster parents because we know as the system is right now, there's probably always gonna be a need for some foster parents. Um, how they selected, how are they trained? Are there so, enough of them? So let me start with the commercial. 
We need foster parents. I don't care where we are in the country. We need foster parents and we need good foster parents. Sometimes it has been difficult for foster parents to get involved because we dig into their background and we have to know who they are and, and, and what kind of family they have to be able to take in a child who has significant trauma. I never think that we train our foster parents enough. You just can't train them enough. Some of it is what they bring, but also what the agency brings. And where I've seen the best has been when, when there is ongoing significant training with foster parents, both in a group setting and individually, and where homes are not just monitored, but the caseworker or social worker acts as a partner with the foster parents. Uh, Ms. Dr. Drumgool talked about 14 different placements. Well, sometimes that occurs because good matches haven't happened between the foster parent and what the, this foster parent can do with this child. One of the needs that we have right now is foster, uh, foster parents who are equipped or want to be trained to deal with children who have significant behavioral health the pandemic has shown us that children being at home for three years, being isolated, has created more trauma than the socialization they were getting in school. The second thing is we don't pay foster parents a lot unless you're a, a professional foster parent and your rate for that particular home is at a different level. So it's the ability to recruit foster parents, be able to train them to be honest with them, the types of children that they're going to be serving so that we can decrease the number of children being removed and placed in multiple homes. Okay, because that, that creates a trauma every time they got to go Every somewhere. time it yeah. is a trauma, every time that child has to move. The biggest trauma starts when they're moved from their parents. And then if you can imagine being moved every 30, 40 days for some kids, sometimes every two years. And what we have to do as a system is to figure out what is that trigger that causes that combustion between the foster home and the child so that we prepare the foster uh, parent for what may happen. If you get a child, uh, as Dr. Drumgool said, between 14 and 15, that's mild enough. That's what they do at 14 and 15. But how do we prepare the foster parent for that? What should our training look like? Right. A um, couple more questions I want to ask, and then we're going to close this out. Um, we appreciate you being such a wealth of knowledge uh, here. Um, this is just a general question. What's the happiest day in the life of a child welfare social worker? I think, the, I know what the happiest day was for me. Uh, the happiest day was when you work with a family that you thought just was not going to be able to make it, and you end up having that child and parent and family reunify and the family goes on to live at their level what they consider a healthy life and the child doing well. And I have seen some of those. Okay. It has not always been bad. What do you think is the key as you see those families that you weren't sure about, but they made it? Uh, what sort of is the key? What do you think the difference is between them and the family that just can't ever get it together? I think the difference, uh, Janice, is a couple of things. One, that family probably has great family support around them. And that family, if that extended family and community family is there to support, not necessarily um, 
the word is uh, uh, missing. They're there to support and engage, but not to cripple them. And they're and that family is willing to be authentic about what's working and what's not working, and they're willing to course correct. That's one. The second is having a case manager that really understands the family dynamic and is pitch hitting at, acting as a coach, a guide, a teacher with that family and that child and that foster home. If you remember in Mecklenburg, one of the things that we did well is even when a child was reunified with their biological family, the foster parent was still engaged with the biological family. Mm -hmm. And there was additional support to help that biological family uh, um, move forward. I don't know if you remember that, but we did a lot of that. Uh, mm -hmm. And that was cutting edge in those days. Uh, so I think it's the work of the social worker. I think it's the work of the judge who is very honest with the family when they come before him what his expectations are. And I think it's the extended family and the community family that decides that they're gonna surround this family with some good love, sometimes tough love, sometimes compassion and passion all at the same time to say, you can do this. And a worker who's willing to be a coach, a guide, a teacher, and a champion for that family. Okay. You talked about not having enough foster parents. Are there enough social workers like that? You know, I think um, our role as social work, uh, as social workers, is hard. It's a hard job. Very tough and, job. And, and you have got to, you will see some things that you just can't believe that are just, will keep you up at night. I don't ever think we have enough social work, but I don't always think that we talk about the value of this profession. I got into this profession because I wanted to be a good student. I got into public um, child welfare because I believed in servitude. I believed in the premise of serving others. And by me bringing my authentic self to the table, could I help somebody else be able to leverage who they were to have a better life? Okay. With that said, you want to be an advertisement for folks taking an interest in social work? <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It is it is one it's of those a noble, you know, it's a noble profession and everybody can't do this. I've heard, I've seen some things over my 30 years that I'll be honest with you, Janice, just brought tears to my eyes. I just simply couldn't believe it. I was outraged. You all used to bring tears to my eyes when you would describe it to me. That's right. Um, That's right. I think um, the one of the ones I can't remember if you were still there then or if it was after you left, but it was a case where essentially the father had shaken a baby off of her skeleton. That's right. That's right. And we had quite a few in that day of shaken baby syndromes. That's what they called it. The other thing that we've had quite a lot of, and this is national, nationally, is uh, 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 co-sleeping together. Uh, we, we try to tell parents, don't sleep with the infant now. You know, I know what you're trying to sue them, but you can't do that. Um, again, there are so many things that affect um, our child welfare system. And as you know, right now, uh, uh, substance abuse and drugs is probably paramount that affects not only the parent, but also kids in care. And we've got to figure that out. And so, yes, getting to children early and often at the time that we begin to see risk factors with that child or family instead of waiting 
until they get 15 or 16 and then try to remove. Yeah, it's, it's late then. Late in the game. Last question. If you had a magic wand that you could wave, what would you make happen to ensure that these children are raised in safer and more loving environments? Couple of things. Number one, help the parents or families utilize the resources that they have to the best of their ability. SNAP, TANF, they're all uh, uh, stopgap measures. But wherever we can get families back into treatment, get families back into the workforce to work on their own, all of that education, some type of trade, those are the kinds of things that we need to be able to do. I often think, Janice, about the social determinants of health, which is what Dr. Drum, what Dr. Drum Bull is doing an excellent job. If you want a healthy family, there's three things you got to be able to have them have. Number one, access to care. Number two, good education. Number three, uh, good housing. And number four, the ability to work. If you don't have those four things, it is going to be hard for any child and or family to be able to survive in a healthy manner. And again, I'm not talking about, uh, certainly we would love to see everybody at a $74,000, $75,000 job. But whatever it is that you have, how can we help you make the best of it? How can we help you get to worthy wages? And without those four social determinants of health, there are six, but those are the four that I think are the most important. If you don't have those locked down in a way that is beneficial to the family and the child, that child and family will continue to struggle. And one of the things I'm so impressed with with Dr. Drungul is that he has figured out all six of those mm -hmm. social determinants of health and how he's bringing it together with his partner. He's making it a community effort. And isn't that what it's supposed to be about? Yeah, and really child is. welfare, quite honestly, that's where we're moving back to. We realize as government, we can't do it. We've got mm -hmm. to go to the community and we've got to ask them for help. Okay. Thank you so much for this. Is there anything else you want to share with our Local Matters listeners before we close out our interview today? No, not at all. Other than I I would be remiss if I didn't say we need good foster parents. Oh, all right. Why didn't you say that? Why didn't you say that? You know, and we do. We right. do. Not to say that we don't have good foster parents now, but we, we need foster parents. And then we need to be able to treat them right. Once we get them, we got to treat them right. Right. Great. Thank you so much for sharing this of knowledge that you've developed over uh, years of watching the profession evolve. And we're happy to hear about the evolutions because it appears that the profession generally recognizes that conditions have changed and we have to respond differently to those circumstances based upon what's happening, be it fentanyl use or just recognition that some of the prior practices were not um, there's been an attempt to evolve and change to meet current needs. So we really appreciate you enlightening us about that. And, and now you are officially a part of the Local Matters podcast oh, thank family. You. Thank so you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed this afternoon speaking with you. Please join Local Matters next week when my guest will be Monique Williams. She is a local author, and you may remember her because she was an anchor on WRDW for a while. I close with my favorite Bible verse, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. 
For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. This show is designed to contribute to each of those, giving you the power that comes with knowledge, demonstrating love for your local community, and offering you wisdom for decision-making so that you possess a sound mind when it comes to these topics. Please tune in next Wednesday at 1.30 p.m. or Thursday at 7 p.m. here on 103.7 FM or 1600 AM. Or please go to SoundCloud, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts at any time because local matters.